Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. and welcome to TGI Crime Day. Okay, I know I'm so late to the party on this because the Murdoch murders on Netflix came out months ago, but I had not taken the time to watch it yet. But a couple of weeks ago, within the span of like three days, I had multiple people uh, message me and ask me if I had watched it. And then everyone yelled at me because I hadn't watched it yet. And the reason I took forever to watch it is because the little that I knew about this case was enough to know that once I started, it would be down the rabbit hole for me. And that is exactly what happened. I binge watched the entire three-part documentary on Netflix in a day. And then after that, I went through every possible article I could find of all of the ins and outs and strange connections, to say the least, that happened within the Murdoch family. The amount of crimes and suspicious activity that was connected to this family is absolutely terrifying. It's awful to think that we live in a world where people who are rich enough and have the right connections can get away with just about anything. This is a case full of power trips and privileged, spoiled people getting away with the unthinkable. There is a lot to cover in this case, so this will be done in at least two parts, uh, maybe three, depending how much I can get done in part two. But in part one, we will go over the events that were covered in the Netflix docuseries. And then part two, we're going to dive deeper into the things that were left out of the docuseries and the updates that have happened since the series came out. Um, like I said... I will be going over what happened in the Netflix series, but I also tried to dig in a little bit deeper on certain parts so there will be some extra information. It's not just going to be a summary of the exact show. It is a lot to keep track of and there are timelines that overlap and get really confusing, so I'm going to do my best to keep this as organized and as easy to follow as possible. So, first of all, who are the Murdochs? The Murdoch family has been well known in the Lowcountry region near South Carolina's coast for over a century. Randolph Murdoch Sr. founded the civil litigation law firm that is now known as the Parker Law Group LLP in 1910. From 1920 to 2006, three generations of Murdochs served as the circuit solicitor for the 14th district. Circuit solicitor is an elected position that is basically the same thing as a district attorney or prosecuting attorney. The 14th district is the largest district in South Carolina, covering five counties. This district became known as Murdoch Country because the story goes that people believed, or I guess knew, that the justice system always worked in favor of the Murdoch family. Many attorneys felt like the justice system there was rigged and would make motions to settle cases rather than having to go to trial up against the well-known Murdochs. Because they held the position for so long and they all worked together, the Murdochs had a huge amount of control in the judicial and political playing field. They took on civil and criminal cases and had their control in a network of judges, lawyers, law enforcement, sheriffs, and the average person on the street who would serve in a jury. They were the law and they were above the law. It sounds ridiculous and dramatic and like an old Western TV show, but it's true by all accounts. You'll see. Aside from serving as solicitors, the Murdoch family also had their own law firm, Peters Murdoch Parker Elzelroth and Dietrich, PMPED, that specialized in personal injury litigation and wrongful death lawsuits. That is going to play an important role later, so hold on to that piece of information. Randolph Murdoch Sr. became the 14th county solicitor in 1920, and he ran a newspaper called the Hampton County Herald. He was the county solicitor for 20 years until his death in 1940. Unfortunately, Randolph Murdoch Sr. was driving his car when it was struck by a train. After his death, Randolph Murdoch II took over the position and acted as the 14th County Solicitor for 46 years. It's a long time for one person to be in a position of power. 
A few months after Randolph Sr. died, Randolph Jr. sued the railroad company, claiming that poor maintenance to the railroad was the cause of his father's accident. It was suspected that the collision was actually a suicide or an incident related to drunk driving, but the railroad company paid out a settlement anyways. Randolph Jr. was known for, quote, his love of chewing tobacco, his courtroom prowess, and his flair for acting out murders before spellbound juries, end quote. In 1956, Randolph Jr. was indicted after he allegedly warned a bootlegger to move his moonshine to a different county to avoid an upcoming raid by the ATF. He stood before a jury and was acquitted of all charges. He continued serving as the solicitor until he retired in 1986, and then he passed away in 1999 from natural causes. His son, Randolph Murdoch III, took over as solicitor in 1986, and he held that position until he retired in 2006. Randolph III had three sons who were also part of the family law firm, Randolph IV, John Marvin, and Richard Alexander. Richard Alexander is the head of the family that we will be focusing on heavily in this case. He goes by Alec, which is spelt like Alex because it's a nickname from his middle name, Alexander, but he goes by Alec. It was insanely confusing when I was watching the documentary because every time they showed his name, it was spelled Alex, but I was like, everyone is definitely calling him Alec. Anyway, Alec graduated from the University of South Carolina Law School in 1994 and joined the family law firm while also volunteering at the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office. While he was in college, he married Margaret Kennedy Bransetter, and they had two sons together, Richard Alexander Jr., who they call Buster, and Paul. The Murdoch family was obviously very wealthy. They owned multiple houses around town, including a huge 1,500-acre hunting property with a lodge, kennels for their hunting dogs, and multiple ponds where they could go fishing. This property is going to come up a lot. I will be calling this the Moselle property. Uh, they also had a two-seater airplane and a landing strip, as well as a house near the river, among many other properties. They were always taking lavish vacations and had all of the money and power they could ever hope to have. They were also extremely entitled and oftentimes selfish. Buster was following in his dad's footsteps. He was a good student and was accepted into law school. And everyone said that Maggie just adored Buster. She was overjoyed at his accomplishments and so proud that he wanted to join the family business. Their younger son, Paul, had friends who all said that he was so fun to be around. He was hilarious and was always making them laugh. The problem was that once Paul started drinking, he became violent and moody and just nasty to be around. They gave Paul a drunk alter ego nickname, Timmy, and they all said that when Paul got drunk, they would gear up for this sweet, fun-loving kid to turn into this horrible Timmy version of himself. Everyone close to Paul said that it seemed pretty obvious that Buster was kind of the favorite in this family, and it seemed like Paul was treated like the black sheep because he didn't have aspirations to go on and become a lawyer or do any of the things that his parents and his family had done before him. Paul dated a girl named Morgan Dottie for about four years during and after high school, and she is heavily featured in the Netflix documentary. She is incredible. She is beautiful and well-spoken and really brave. And it's incredible to watch her kind of go through all of these things and to be able to talk about it and feel safe talking about it. We'll get more into that as we go on. But Morgan said in the documentary that it seemed like Paul thought that his parents were disappointed in him and he always felt like a little bit of an outsider in his own family. As I said, Morgan does an amazing job in this documentary. Um, everyone featured in the documentary does an incredible job. Uh, but Morgan gives a lot of insight into what was going on behind closed doors with the Murdoch family. And the way that she presents herself with such bravery and composure is truly mind-blowing. Morgan started dating Paul her junior year of high school, and she was kind of thrown into this life of luxury with the Murdochs. Morgan's parents, Bill and Diane, said that from what they saw of Paul, 
He was a sweet kid and a good boyfriend. He would always show up with random gifts for Morgan and would make those cute banners to ask her to dances and things like that. They remembered times where the Murdochs would take Morgan on their family vacations, including to the Kentucky Derby, the NBA Finals, and even fishing for Marlin in Guatemala. Morgan, of course, wanted her family to get along with the Murdochs, but it seemed that they just didn't quite fit. Bill and Diane were both from Rhode Island. Bill is a landscaped architect and designer, and Diane works as a nurse in a prison. They just came from different backgrounds, and unfortunately, adults can be even more judgmental and clicky than high school students. Morgan's parents worked and kept to themselves. They didn't know the Murdoch's reputation the same way that a lot of people did around town because they were fairly new to town. Morgan wanted to fit in, and she wanted to be what Paul and his family kind of expected her to be. One thing that gets brought up a lot is how little Paul's parents cared about his drinking. In fact, they basically enabled it. They would buy alcohol for Paul and his friends, and Paul being drunk around his family as a high school student was totally normal. Morgan remembered specifically at the town's yearly watermelon festival, the kids would all sneak into Alex's office at the law firm, and he would just give them liquor. This was Paul and Morgan, as well as the other kids of the other partners at the firm who were between 14 and 16 years old. As I mentioned earlier, Paul would get really out of control when he was drinking. The people closest to him said that he loved the attention and would get super loud, and they described how he would look at you like he had nothing behind his eyes. He would stare at you with this blank look on his face like he was trying to understand what you were saying, but he couldn't comprehend a word because he was so out of his mind drunk. And that happened on a regular basis, which is really sad and really scary. This kid was, I mean, 16, 17 at the time that they were talking about these stories. Morgan tried to tell Paul's mom, Maggie, that she was worried about Paul, that he was drinking way too much, but Maggie brushed her off, and Morgan said that it seems like Maggie treated it like it wasn't a big deal because the idea of her son being an alcoholic and having a problem was embarrassing and shameful for their family, so she just kind of brushed it under the rug. Morgan's parents didn't know the full extent of Paul's behavior until later, and Diane wondered if Paul ever even knew what an issue this really was because none of the adults in his life were teaching him that these decisions had consequences. No one was giving him boundaries to say, hey, you shouldn't drink that much. It's actually incredibly sad that Paul was allowed to get into these situations at an age where the adults responsible for him should have been teaching him right from wrong. It's difficult not to feel a little bit of empathy towards him because his whole life he wasn't given any kind of boundaries or limits, and the entitled attitude was passed down for generations through this family. As their relationship went on, Paul's drinking became even worse, and he started to get physical with Morgan. For a long time, she didn't know what to do. She didn't tell anyone, and she kept it a secret from her friends, and especially her parents, like a lot of people do. Especially at such a young age, she was only 18 to 19 when things got really bad, and she said that they were always on again, off again. Paul would break up with her one minute and then change his mind and beg her to come back to him, on and on. As many of you unfortunately know, these types of abuse patterns go around and around, and it's really difficult for people to get out of these situations a lot of the time. Paul became more and more reckless because he knew that he could get away with anything. Anytime something went amiss, which it often did, Paul would call his grandpa, Randolph, who would call Alec, and they would come up with a plan to get Paul out of whatever trouble he'd gotten himself in at that time. There was one major incident that Morgan remembered. Morgan and Paul went to a Christmas party, and Paul was, of course, out of his mind drunk, and Morgan told him that she wanted to drive them home, but Paul got really aggressive and physical with Morgan and told him that no one could drive his truck but him. 
So she reluctantly got in the passenger seat and Paul got behind the wheel and they ended up in a ditch. The truck tipped over onto its side and they had to crawl out. Morgan was terrified and she immediately called 911. And when Paul realized that she did, he grabbed her phone out of her hand and threw it in the bushes and then called Randolph. Within minutes before the ambulance even showed up, Randolph showed up with Maggie and Alec, who removed multiple guns and a bunch of beer from the truck. They asked Morgan what she was thinking. Why would she call 911? Didn't she know that she could have gotten their precious son in trouble? They weren't worried at all that Morgan and Paul could have been hurt or that Paul could have hurt someone else. They just cared about their reputation. So Paul wasn't in trouble. He had no consequences. And he didn't learn one thing from this incident because no one made him change his actions. Morgan said that for the Murdochs, quote, you snap your fingers and it was gone. That's just how it was, end quote. A while after that accident, Buster graduated from college and his family threw him a big party at a hotel. So Paul and Morgan went to their hotel room afterwards. And again, Paul was out of his mind drunk when they laid down. Paul kept kicking Morgan in the legs and she finally lost it and was like, what is your problem? Apparently, Paul started screaming at her, started trying to choke her. And during this attack, he punched her in the leg really hard, leaving a huge bruise. Morgan was horrified that this was happening. She didn't understand how things had gotten so out of control, but she didn't know how to break things off with him. She said that she had two best friends who were there for her and constantly encouraged her to break up with him and supported her the best that they could. They didn't know the full extent of Paul's abuse, but they knew that they didn't like him and they didn't think that he was good enough to be dating Morgan. Morgan, Mallory, and Miley were an inseparable trio. There are so many pictures and videos of them together and they just seem like the most fun, and bubbly, outgoing group of girls that you would, like, want to be friends with. Mallory and Miley grew up together. They actually met in preschool, and Miley said that she was really nervous to start school. She was really shy and introverted as a kid, but one day Mallory walked right up to her and told her that she was really pretty, and they became best friends right away. And that was when they were tiny, like three or four years old. It seems like Mallory was very, very confident and very friendly, and she was loved by so many people. Morgan joined this friend group when they were in high school. I guess they were all at a party one night when Mallory complimented Morgan on her shoes. And just like with Miley, they fell into a very quick friendship. All three other girls worked together at a local clothing store called Retail Therapy. And when Morgan was going through it constantly with Paul, she would start crying at work after they'd had a bad fight. And Mallory and Miley always made her laugh and told her how wonderful she was. The kind of best friends that you need in your late teens and early 20s as you go through these life changes and learning how to be an actual adult are so important, and it sounds like that's what this group of girls was for each other. As I said, they didn't know everything that was happening with Paul because she kept a lot of it secret, but they always told Morgan that it wasn't normal or right for her to be scared of the person she's dating. Mallory and Miley had also been dating their boyfriends for a long time, um, and they were really concerned because they both had really happy, safe relationships, and so they were really worried about Morgan because they knew that what she was going through wasn't right. All three of the girls' boyfriends were also very good friends, so they were a really tight-knit group that hung out all together a lot. Miley was dating a guy named Cooper, whose cousin Anthony was dating Mallory, and then Anthony and Paul had grown up together, so they all kind of just fell into this friend group. Anthony and Mallory had known each other since they were really little because their older sisters were best friends. Their families all went to the same church, and Anthony said that when they were little, quote, even if we didn't like it, we were stuck together, end quote. As they got older and over that whole girls are gross and boys have cooties age, they became best friends, and that friendship eventually turned into dating when they hit high school. 
when that friendship turned into a relationship, Anthony's mom was so happy that they started dating. Um, his mom, Beverly, said that Mallory brought out a side in Anthony that she hadn't seen in a long time. He was kind of a party kid and a little wild, but when he started dating Mallory, he realized that he wanted to kind of settle down with the partying and the drinking, and it just wasn't as great as he once thought it was because he just was happier hanging out with Mallory, and he wanted to be the kind of person who was good enough for her, which I just think is so cute and precious. <laughs> Uh, the way her friends described it, it seems like Mallory had kind of liked Anthony for a long time. Miley said that Anthony was scared to start dating Mallory because he was kind of intimidated by her. And when they officially started dating, which was on a New Year's Eve, the whole friend group was like, it's about time. Mallory was absolutely head over heels for Anthony, and they had a really sweet relationship. Mallory got along okay with Paul. She tolerated him because she wanted to be supportive of Morgan, Miley said that at first she also tried to be supportive, but eventually she realized that Paul was kind of a mess and she couldn't stand being around him, especially when he was drinking. She felt like none of them should hang out with Paul when he was drinking because he turned into a jerk and was actually kind of dangerous for everyone to be around. Unfortunately, those fears that Miley had would be validated on the night of February 23rd, 2019. That night, the group went to an oyster roast, and Anthony said that he really wasn't up for going, but Mallory really wanted to go because Miley was going, so he agreed that they would go. Paul convinced Morgan to join them. Basically, he was giving her a guilt trip saying that she should go because her best friends were going. It seems like they kind of were in one of their breakup periods, but Paul was trying to rope her back in, and Morgan didn't want to be cut out of her friend group just because she and Paul were on the rocks, so she decided to go. Paul insisted that they should take his family's boat up the Beaufort River to their river home for some pregame drinking, which was something they'd done plenty of times before. And if I understand correctly, Paul wanted to take the boat because he wanted to avoid any cops, so that he could drink as much as he wanted and not have to worry about getting pulled over. Paul took his older brother Buster's ID and bought the group alcohol at a gas station. They had graduated from high school at this point, but they were all like 19 or 20. None of them were legal drinking age, and Paul was seen on the surveillance camera buying alcohol, and as he walks out to his truck um, where everyone else is waiting for him, there's also footage of him lifting the drinks up over his head, showing them off in victory to his friends. And listen, I'm not here to say that teens never drink. It obviously happens plenty. So the underage drinking thing is like a foreign concept to me, kind of, because where I grew up in very conservative Utah, it was not something that was common. I remember specifically my mom constantly asking me if I felt peer pressure to drink when I was in high school. And I remember telling her like, mom, even if I wanted to drink, I wouldn't even know how to get my hands on alcohol because none of my friends drank. It just wasn't a thing. But I have plenty of friends who grew up in other places where it was a very common thing to drink and party, etc. And especially, I mean, you know, other countries have lower drinking age limits, etc. It's your choice. Do your thing, okay? But the problem comes when people start acting irresponsibly, and that goes for any age. And the main issue with Paul is that he just again, got away with anything. He was never given consequences. He was never warned to be careful. So he was very comfortable and overly confident that nothing would ever go wrong because it never did for the Murdochs. There are videos of Paul funneling beers that night. Um, they were all drinking, but Paul was drinking to excess. Uh, they got to the oyster roast around 8 p.m. and then stayed until about midnight. They were all cold and ready to head home. People at the oyster roast kept telling them not to take the boat. They needed to get a ride from someone else because Paul was so drunk. But Paul was set on what he was going to do, and he was not going to leave his boat there. And Morgan said that even if someone tried to take the keys from Paul, he would have absolutely lost his mind because, quote, the Murdochs are never told no, ever, end quote. 
In the 2023 documentary, Morgan said that she will never stop regretting that they didn't just get a ride home with someone else. And it's always so heartbreaking in these kinds of cases when people are left with that regret and guilt, even though it's not their fault. None of these kids could have predicted that this night was going to go the way that it did. And even though logically we can say that they shouldn't blame themselves for what happened, it would be impossible not to think of all of the what ifs. And that's a really horrible thing to have to carry around. Almost as soon as they left the oyster roast, Miley and Connor got into an argument. And if I understand correctly, this was because Miley was so sick of Paul's BS and she just wanted to go home. But Connor and Paul were being crazy. They wanted to go out to a bar and drink some more. So Paul drove the boat to a nearby dock and they all got off the boat and walked around while Connor and Paul went to a bar called Luther's. They were seen on surveillance cameras taking multiple shots in the 10 minutes that they were there. I can't figure out exactly how they were able to get alcohol. Again, Paul had Buster's ID, maybe Connor had a fake ID, or maybe this was just one of those places that didn't bother to check IDs or they didn't mind serving minors because it's not like that would be totally out of the question. Uh, Miley and Morgan were both pissed at Connor and Paul and debated just calling someone to ask for a ride home. But what sort of happened was that Miley didn't want to leave Connor with Paul. She was really worried about him. And even though she was mad at him, she didn't want Paul to get him into any trouble. So she didn't want to leave him. And I don't blame her. So then Morgan didn't want to leave Miley with them. And then Mallory didn't want to leave her friends with the guys acting like idiots. So Anthony, of course, didn't want to leave Mallory. So back in the boat, they all went. The whole group was seen on CCTV footage heading back towards the boat around 1.17 a.m. And on the video, you can see that Mallory and Anthony are walking hand in hand. They're smiling and they're laughing with each other. It's very obvious that they were very much in love with each other and they were really happy together. And it's so heartbreaking knowing what we do now. Paul can also be seen on this footage, clearly highly intoxicated and stumbling around. And back in the boat, Paul's behavior got increasingly worse. Paul was driving the boat, and Connor was standing next to him trying to control the boat, which made Paul really angry. Everyone was getting really upset. Emotions were high because Paul would start driving really fast, and then he would drive around in circles, and he would put the throttle all the way up and then walk away from the wheel. And anytime that Connor would kind of try to jump in and take control of the boat, Paul would yell and scream and make a big scene. Anthony and Mallory were sitting in the back of the boat, and Anthony was trying to hold on to Mallory because they were flying around back there, and Morgan and Miley were sitting in the very front of the boat. Everyone was screaming at Paul to knock it off, and at one point, he got in Morgan's face, and he started yelling at her and asking why she wasn't backing him up and defending him and just letting everyone yell at him, and she said to him, why would I back you up? You're being crazy. According to Morgan, Paul said to her, quote, you know what's crazy? your father not making enough money to support your family, end quote. Morgan, of course, burst into tears. This escalated to him yelling at her and then calling her names. And at some point he spit on her and then slapped Morgan across the face. It makes me so mad. Um, at that point, all hell broke loose. Morgan's friends knew that Paul and Morgan had had fights. They knew that Paul acted like an ass sometimes, but they had no idea that he'd gotten physical with her. And I don't remember which of the friends said this, but one of them brought up basically that the way that he slapped her without hesitating, it was very obvious that this was not a one-time thing. This was not the first time, um, which just makes me sick for her. Uh, everyone was screaming. Everyone got really upset when that happened, and everyone was really scared because Paul was, again, acting like a maniac. It was about 2.20 a.m. by this point. They had been on the water for an hour, and it was really foggy, and visibility was awful on the water. That was when the bow of the boat suddenly went up and they crashed into the Archer's Creek Bridge near Paris Island. 
Anthony and Mallory flew out of the back of the boat into the water, and Anthony dragged himself onto the shore, and everyone was running around, screaming they couldn't find Mallory. Anthony went back into the water over and over, diving as far as he could, screaming for Mallory. They all were trying to search for her, and Connor had fallen inside of the boat and was knocked unconscious and when he came to he was the one who called 911. Connor was really hurt, Morgan was really hurt and bleeding a lot and then the police arrived first and then the ambulance came. And I guess Paul did this thing when he got really drunk where he would take off his clothes so at some point while he was driving the boat he had undressed down to his boxers so when the officers got there he was just in his underwear and he was being loud and belligerent and totally unhelpful as Anthony is hysterical screaming for Mallory. Um, the body cam footage that they show in the documentary is so upsetting and so hard to watch. And Paul kept asking the officers, uh, to use one of their phones because he wanted to call his grandpa as usual, because he knew that he was in deep shit this time. He was refusing to get in an ambulance and being completely uncooperative. Paul wasn't even the slightest bit worried about Mallory and instantly was trying to point fingers at Connor saying that Connor had been the one driving. Apparently Paul said to police, quote, why do you need to know who was driving? That's not going to help find Mallory, end quote. Anthony was heard on the body cam footage saying to an officer, quote, do you know Alec Murdoch? That's his son. Good luck, end quote. Anthony knew the second that this all happened that Paul was not going to face any consequences because of who his family was, and he wasn't far off from that guess. Paul was clearly hammered, but they didn't ask him to do a field sobriety test, and four hours later when they took his blood alcohol level, he was still three times over the legal limit four hours later. Anthony refused to leave the scene. He wasn't going anywhere without Mallory, so his parents met him at the crash site and waited with him while they continued searching. Mallory's parents, Renee and Philip, were called around 4 a.m. and told about the crash. They were horrified to hear that Mallory hadn't been found, and they went to the crash site immediately. Around 4.30 a.m., divers went into the water, but the current was really intense, and they had a hard time doing the first searches. Connor, Paul, Morgan, and Miley were all taken to the hospital to be treated for their injuries. They weren't there long before Paul's grandpa, Randolph, showed up and started telling them not to talk to police. Immediately, he was trying to cover Paul's ass, and it's infuriating. Connor had a fractured jaw and a huge cut on his chin from falling in the boat, and he called his parents and told them that there had been a crash and that Mallory was missing. Apparently, right after Connor's call, his parents got another phone call from Alec, who told them that Connor had been driving the boat, but not to worry, because they would take care of him. Alec made it to the hospital, and he passed Connor, who was being pushed in a wheelchair on his way to take a CT scan, and Connor said that Alec stopped the nurse that was pushing him and whispered to Connor that he needed to keep his mouth shut and tell the officers that he didn't know who was driving the boat. Connor was scared out of his mind because he knew the Murdoch's reputation, and there were already rumors flying around town that they had committed crimes in the past and gotten away with it. Because of that fear, Connor went along with what Alec told him to do, and he told the officers that he didn't know what happened, he just saw the bridge, and they hit it, and that was it. Morgan had to get a bunch of stitches in her hand because it had been badly torn up. She was sitting in the front of the boat, and when they crashed, she flew forward and her hand got crushed between the boat and the bridge. Morgan's mom, Diane, got to the hospital as quickly as she could, but before she got there, Officer Austin Pritcher asked Morgan for her statement. Alec and Randolph Murdoch barged in in the middle of this and said that they were Morgan's representation and told him that he couldn't speak to her anymore at that time. Morgan asked the nurse to make Alec leave her room because he was insisting that she shouldn't be alone, and I guess when Diane got there, she and Morgan could hear Alec and Randolph talking to the Officer Pritcher in the hallway, saying that they couldn't interview Paul because he was too drunk. 
And again, Paul had been acting out of control. He was yelling and he wouldn't hold still while they were trying to examine him. And Diane said that one of the nurses, who knew that Morgan was dating Paul, pulled Diane aside and told her, quote, nurse to nurse and mom to mom, you need to keep her away from him. It was really sad to hear Diane talk about coming to the realization that Paul was not who she thought he was and that his relationship with Morgan had been extremely, extremely toxic and at times abusive. As I mentioned before, Morgan kept that a secret for a long time. Along with trying to control all of the kids' statements, Alec was cold and uncaring towards the fact that, because of his son, Mallory was missing. Miley's mom, Gina, remembered that when she got to the hospital, she asked Alec if he had heard anything about Mallory, and he said, who? Gina, and myself, was shocked at his attitude, and she said to him, Mallory Beach. He said, oh, I'm pretty sure we all know how that's going to turn out. What is wrong with this man? I mean, a lot of things. We'll get into it. The Murdochs were so worried about covering their own asses that they didn't even care that their son had caused multiple injuries to his friends and that one of the girls was missing. It's mind-boggling to me that anyone could be that selfish and callous, but here we are. One of the things that was pointed out in the documentary was the fact that if this hadn't been Paul Murdoch, anyone else who would have been driving that boat would have spent a night in a jail cell for driving a boat with the amount of alcohol that Paul had in his system. But when your daddy has law enforcement in his back pocket, you get away with all kinds of things. Again, we'll get into it. The following days were full of heartache and terror for Mallory's family and friends. Anthony sat by the river for nearly a full day before his parents were able to drag him away to get his injuries treated. And search and rescue divers looked all up and down the river and in the surrounding area, but Mallory was nowhere to be found. When people saw the news and it started spreading like wildfire through the town, it was widely believed that Paul was not going to face any consequences. Many people who had lived there a long time were used to seeing the Murdochs in the middle of a scandal that was quickly swept under the rug. Mallory's mom, Renee, wanted to see the boat and see where it crashed, but the police wouldn't let her anywhere near the boat because it was a crime scene and they were still trying to piece everything together. There was an officer that specifically told her that he had been given strict instructions not to let anyone near the boat, which is fair, except that when Maggie and Randolph Murdoch, again, that's Paul's mom and grandpa, I know there are so many names to keep track of in this, but when they showed up, they were allowed to walk right up to the boat. Not only that, but Alec's brother was the person that was called to tow the boat out of the water. Three days after the crash, Mallory still hadn't been found. Connor's parents, Marty and Christine, got a phone call from Alec saying that they need to have a quote-unquote sit-down. Connor and Marty were instructed to meet Alec at the law firm after dark. It was all very cloak and dagger. When they walked into the dimly lit building, Alec told Marty, pick an office so that he would feel comfortable. Basically, Alec was trying to show him that this wasn't a setup and that he wasn't being secretly recorded or something, but that action made Marty feel like they were definitely being set up. Marty said that Alec sat them down and told him, quote, I need to know where y'all stand. I can't even mourn the loss of Mallory for worrying about what might happen to your son. And Marty said, quote, I can't think of anything but the loss of this child, end quote. It's so odd to hear the way that the Murdochs interacted with people, like they were so out of touch with reality that they thought that saying something like that would somehow show that Alec cared about the situation or that it was supposed to show Connor's family that he was worried for Connor when he was clearly trying to lead a very specific narrative. Luckily, they did not fall for Alec's crap. They saw exactly what was going on, and from that point, they had their guards up. Poor Marty remembers his son Connor asking him, quote, Daddy, are they going to try to kill me? End quote. Again, 
the Murdochs had a reputation, and it was not one to get on the wrong side of. Five days after the crash, Mallory still hadn't been found, and obviously at this point, they were looking for her body. There was no way that Mallory could have survived this long. If she had somehow washed up on the shore and ended up in a hospital somewhere, they would have heard something by this point. But it was strange that she hadn't been found. They knew exactly where she went into the water, and everyone was starting to worry that something wasn't right here. People started to think that the Murdochs didn't want Mallory to be found, kind of a no-body, no-crime situation. There were tons of divers and helicopters searching the water for days with no signs of Mallory's body. Anthony went to the river every day to watch the search and talk to Mallory. One day, Anthony's parents were waiting for him in their car near the river. They were watching the helicopters search when suddenly, Maddie Murdoch hopped into their back seat. And Maggie asked them, quote, what if they never find her? End quote. Beverly said that in that moment, she thought that if they didn't find Mallory's body, she would forever wonder, what did they do? Seven days after the crash, Mallory's body was finally found. A search and rescue volunteer found Mallory's body five miles from where the accident happened. The current in this area can be really intense, and that's why they weren't able to find her the night of the accident and for so long afterwards. Mallory's official cause of death was blunt force trauma and drowning. As it sometimes goes in these well-known cases, Mallory gets lost in the drama of the situation a lot of the time. The Netflix documentary did a really great job talking about Mallory as a person and not just as a victim, which was really nice to see. So I wanted to take a moment and talk about Mallory from the beautiful things that I have read and watched her friends and family say about her. Mallory Madison Beach was born April 18th, 1999. She was an Aries, for those of you who like zodiac things. Uh, when Mallory was little, she did pageants and she also played softball. And her dad, Philip, said, quote, she followed me everywhere I went. She wanted to do what I did. She could be a lady when she needed to be a lady and she could be a tomboy, so to speak. She loved hunting and fishing, end quote. Her mom, Renee, described her as headstrong and a people person. Mallory loved animals and had an ambition to become a veterinarian. Renee said that Mallory was always bringing home strays, especially dogs. She loved puppies. Mallory graduated from Wade Hampton High School, where she played soccer. At the time of her death, she was taking college classes and was working at a clothing boutique called Retail Therapy. All of her friends described her as bubbly, fun, and outgoing. Each story that they shared in the Netflix documentary about Mallory painted her as someone who was very kind and a very loyal friend, and she was absolutely adored by her parents and her sisters and all of her friends. Mallory's funeral was held on March 7th, 2019 at the Open Arms Fellowship Church in Hampton, and it was completely packed full of people there to support the Beach family. One speaker said, quote, She went early, she went young, but she went full of life, embracing. She loved her family, friends, and her shelter pets, end quote. There has been a lot of tragedy and obviously a ton of press and drama surrounding Mallory's death, but her family decided to do something absolutely wonderful in her memory. The Beach family started a nonprofit called Mal's Pals to raise money to build a new Hampton County animal shelter or to remodel and improve the current one. So far, the nonprofit has raised over $50,000, and I'll have a link in the description of this episode if you would like to learn more about this nonprofit. It's a really beautiful way for them to keep Mallory's memory alive, and I think it's really incredible that her family is doing that. Mallory's headstone has little puppy paw prints going across it, and has a quote that is written in her handwriting that says, quote, be strong in the Lord and never give up. He's going to do great things. I already know, end quote. I looked into it a little bit and I really tried to find something that talked more about the quote that they chose for her headstone. Um, I would love to know like kind of how her family picked that and if she had written it down somewhere, if it was something that she said a lot. Um, but it is a really beautiful quote and I love that they included that for her. 
Mallory's family did end up filing a wrongful death lawsuit against the Murdochs. Again, we'll get more into that later as we go into the many, many charges eventually brought against Alex Murdoch. You probably already know where this is going. Right from the moment of the crash, Everyone was expecting the Murdoch family to rally around Paul and make sure that he didn't face any consequences, so it was unsurprising when that is exactly what happened. Mallory's parents were able to find a great lawyer, Mark Tinsley, who was recommended by one of their close family friends when they kind of saw where things were going. They told the Beach family, hey, you guys got to be protected against the Murdochs. This friend knew all about the Murdochs and knew that they had a long road ahead of them. Mark Tinsley was also very familiar with the Murdochs and was ready to fight for justice for Mallory and the whole Beach family. About the Murdoch family, Mark said, quote, You're dealing with the best, the most extreme, and you have to be on your toes and prepared at all times. End quote. As I mentioned earlier, the Murdochs' first line of defense was to try to pin everything on Connor and make sure that he was the one looked at as the driver in the accident. Luckily, the night of the crash, Miley wasn't severely injured, and she was interviewed by police right away, and she told them that Paul had definitely been the one driving and acting out of control. Mark Tinsley was able to do a huge investigation into the events of that evening, starting with the CCTV footage of Paul buying beer at the gas station with Buster's ID. So there's definitely footage of him being sold alcohol underage, and then we also can see in the CCTV footage him walking out of the gas station to the truck with his arms up over his head, so proud of himself that he'd illegally made this purchase. Paul purchased about $50 of alcohol, and they all put together that the reason he insisted on taking the boat to the oyster roast was so that they could drink and not have to worry about getting pulled over. There were Snapchat videos of all of them drinking, but as I said, Paul drank more than anyone else, funneling six beers before they even got to the oyster roast, where he continued to drink. Then he was again seen on CCTV with Connor doing shots at a bar before going into the boat. Luckily, there was a paper trail. There was actual evidence showing how much he had been drinking. That helped this case a lot. As I mentioned before, Paul's blood alcohol level was three times over the legal driving limit four hours after the crash happened. If it was still that high four hours after the crash, I can't even imagine how absolutely out of his mind he was on that boat. After the crash, there were about 20 officers and paramedics who responded to the scene, and not one of them thought to have Paul take a sobriety test or to question him or to put him in a cop car because he was acting crazy. Everyone else that was on the boat said that he was the one driving the boat. He was yelling and refusing to get in an ambulance. It's very obvious that he should have been put in a cop car and anyone else would have. That's what everyone keeps saying. If it had been anyone else, none of these officers would have let him walk away from that scene just willy-nilly. There is body cam footage of the officers discussing who had been driving the boat, but none of them did anything about it. Mark Tinsley said, quote, It is not an indication that there was incompetence because you couldn't have that much incompetence. What you don't realize in that moment is the connection those people had to the Murdochs, specifically to Alec. End quote. The lead investigator assigned to Mallory's case was Officer Michael Brock, who worked for the Department of Natural Resources. Michael Brock allegedly had a lot of connections with the Murdoch family, and now there are a lot of eyes on him because of everything that has come out about Alec Murdoch. The night of the crash, Michael Brock was talking to Anthony, a conversation that was supposed to be recorded on body cam footage, where Anthony said to Michael that Paul Murdoch killed his girlfriend. That recording was never presented as evidence, and on top of that, in his investigation into Mallory's death, Michael Brock never once questioned Paul about the events of that night. And while he says that he's not exactly friends with the Murdochs, he also has admitted to visiting the family's river estate and was in contact with Alec's brother John that night. 
He has since been accused of manipulating evidence in order to cover up the Murdoch's involvement in the incident. Another well-known Department of Natural Resources officer, who is also named Michael, but this is Michael Paul Thomas, has also been looked into as a suspicious person connected to this case. Allegedly, Michael Thomas had gotten Paul out of hot water many times before this boating accident. Morgan said, quote, this man was like Alec Murdoch's bitch, end quote. Michael Thomas had been described as John Murdoch's best friend. The night of the crash and the days following, John and Michael Thomas spoke multiple times according to phone records. John's phone records also showed multiple calls to Austin Pritcher, the officer who went to the hospital to interview the kids the night of the accident. And if I understand correctly, Michael Thomas was the reason that John Murdoch was able to remove the boat from that crime scene. Which, again, so inappropriate and seems like a huge conflict of interest that should never have been allowed. But this is what these people do. It sounds so ridiculous. And it sounds like, why would anyone ever let someone do that? How could anyone ever get away with this? But they do, again and again. With all those many, many calls to the Murdoch family from the investigators, not one time did they reach out to Mallory's family. Not once. The night of the accident, while Mallory was still missing, Anthony's parents asked officers if anyone had called Mallory's parents. And on the body cam footage, you can hear one of the officers say, quote, probably not a good idea to make that call. We don't want to create panic, have them out here causing issues, end quote. Their daughter is missing after falling out of a boat in the middle of the night, and you don't want to call them because they'll cause issues? So no one in law enforcement called Renee and Philip Beach. Not that night, and not once since this all happened. They found out about the accident because Renee's mom happened to be watching the news, I think, and she called Renee and was panicked because she saw on TV that there was a boating accident. She asked if Mallory was home. And that is how Renee found out that her daughter was missing in a river. But yeah, let's all make sure that Alec Murdoch's kid is protected. Yikes of bikes. It's terrifying to me that these things happen, and I know I shouldn't be surprised at this point. But seriously. The hospital workers all said that as soon as Alec and Randolph showed up at the hospital, it was chaos. They were trying to keep everyone quiet and start spinning things in their favor to keep Paul from being interrogated. Luckily, they were able to prove that Paul was the one driving the boat, so they couldn't keep trying to pin it on Connor. Without these very specific pieces of evidence, who knows what they could have made happen and put on Connor and his family. So Mark Tinsley hired a biochemical engineer to create a test scenario of the boat crash. This biochemical engineer is an expert in movements of the body and physics, very interesting and probably the coolest person to talk to. Anyways, this engineer did a bunch of tests. He did a bunch of tests on he did a bunch of tests based on everyone's injuries in relation to the damage on the boat to figure out exactly what happened here. Mallory and Anthony had been in the very back of the boat and when they hit the bridge, it threw them out the back of the boat. Miley and Morgan were sitting on a cooler in the front of the boat and Morgan was thrown forward where her hand was crushed between the boat and the bridge. Miley was sitting to Morgan's right with her back against the center console and her feet pressed against the front of the boat, so she mostly stayed where she was and she didn't have any serious injuries. The engineer was able to determine that Connor was thrown against the center console where he got that huge gash in his chin and fractured his jaw. There was blood all over the right side on the floor of the boat because Connor smacked into the windshield and then he fell where the fishing rod holders were and those rod holders were broken and that's what caused the gash in his chin and then the handrail that he'd been holding onto was bent away from the boat. He literally could not have been on the left side where the steering wheel and throttle were and then broken his jaw, smacked into the windshield, gotten blood all over on the right side of the boat. 
where there were the broken rods and the, the puddle of blood, etc. He was absolutely not driving that boat. It would be impossible. Thankfully, someone was doing their job at the crash site and got photos of all of this stuff because if that had been missed and then John Murdoch took that boat away and cleaned it up, there would have been no way to prove 100% that Paul was driving the boat and to place Connor where he was. It would have been Connor's word against Paul's, and I think we can all guess how that would have gone. Having Mark Tinsley brought in was a really smart move because a lot of his information is what made it possible for Paul to be charged as the driver in the boating accident that killed Mallory. It was well known throughout the town what happened, and people speculated that Paul would never serve any time or face any consequences for what happened. And unfortunately, they were pretty much right. Two months after the accident on April 18th, 2019, which would have been Mallory's 20th birthday, Paul was indicted and charged with driving a boat while intoxicated, causing death, and two counts of boating under the influence causing great bodily injury. Based on these charges, he could be looking at 25 years to life in prison. When he was indicted, he was not booked into jail, he was not formally questioned by the investigators, and they didn't even make him take a mugshot. When he appeared in court, he wasn't in a prison uniform or handcuffed, which is pretty standard procedure for a court hearing like this. His quote-unquote mugshot, if you can even call it that, was taken quickly outside the courtroom on an iPhone, and he was just in his button-up shirt and blazer so that it didn't look like a mugshot, and if it was ever on the internet, it wouldn't look like a mugshot. Because we have to protect the Murdoch family at all costs. The courtroom was packed with reporters and Mallory's family and supporters, and everyone said that it was very jarring to see Maggie and Alec waltzing through the courtroom, waving at people, and smiling like they were in a parade and not on a trial where their son was facing felony charges after being responsible for the death of a young woman in their community. These people are living in their own reality, and I don't understand how they have so little sympathy or remorse for the Beach family, but it is what it is. Paul, of course, pled not guilty to the charges, and again, he wasn't booked into jail, he didn't have to take a mugshot, they just threw down that $50,000 bail money and sent him on his merry way. There was no formal trial date set, and there never would be. Here's the thing. Even though I think that Paul was behaving like a drunk idiot, and he had no business driving that boat and acting the way that he did that night, this was ultimately a horrible accident. He wasn't trying to hurt anyone. He didn't intentionally kill Mallory. But the lack of sympathy or remorse for the action is disgusting, to put it very, very, very simply. And I get that these people have so much money and all the connections in the world, and they don't want Paul's charges ruining their reputation or whatever BS they come up with as a justification for their attitude. But to just act that way, to, for Paul to look at this family who lost their daughter because of his actions and continue to take no responsibility and not even apologize, I'm speechless. A couple of years passed and there was still no trial date set. And I guess the Beach family and the Murdochs had a mediation where, if I understand correctly, they were supposed to come up with some kind of a settlement, but the mediation did nothing because the Murdochs are selfish. And so that was why there was supposed to be another formal court date with a jury where Paul would have to face charges, etc. Um, after this, everyone in Paul's friend group pretty much just cut him out of their lives mainly because of his lack of remorse and the fact that this experience didn't make him wake up and realize that he needed to get his life going in a different direction. All of his friends saw him still continuously drinking and partying, and they just couldn't put up with it. They didn't feel like it was the right way to treat Mallory's memory, to continue to be friends with him while he continued to act the way that he was. 
Anthony said that while on the outside, it appeared that Paul was just living it up. He was acting like he got away with it and he didn't care. But Anthony believed that deep down, Paul was hurting and he was scared of where his life was heading. In 2021, things were changing for the Murdochs and cracks were starting to show. Paul moved into a cabin on the family's Moselle property and had multiple run-ins with the law, but of course, nothing happened. Buster was expelled from the University of South Carolina for plagiarism. There were alleged major issues in Alec and Maggie's marriage, and the money was starting to dry up. Bills were going unpaid, and there was a rumor going around town that Maggie had hired a forensic accountant to look into their finances. It's also believed that she was looking to hire a divorce attorney. In the middle of all of this chaos, tragedy hit the Murdochs on June 7, 2021. That night, Alec Murdoch made a 911 call saying that he had arrived home late to find Maggie and Paul had been murdered. Alec said that he got home from work that day and didn't see Paul and Maggie anywhere. This property is huge, so he didn't know where they were. So he took a nap and then he texted Maggie to let her know that he was going to visit his dad, who had been seriously ill. He didn't see them before he left, but when he arrived home around 10.20 p.m., he found Paul and Maggie on the ground near their hunting dog's kennels. Maggie had been shot multiple times in the chest and back, and she was positioned like she had been running away from her attacker, and Paul had been shot in the chest, neck, and head. Maggie and Paul were not perfect people, but they didn't deserve to die. They just didn't, especially at the hands of someone that they loved and trusted. Maggie and Paul get thrown to the side when this case is discussed because of all of the other sensational aspects of it, but their deaths were just as tragic as Mallory's. Paul had a lot of work to do on himself, and it's easy to paint him as a villain for his actions that led to Mallory's death. But he did have people around him who loved him and cared for him and wanted to see him excel and to do better. Even the people who had every right and every reason to be furious with Paul to even hate him, were devastated to hear what happened. Anthony said that he was really mad at Paul for a long time, and he hadn't seen him since a few days after the accident. Um, I guess they were at the same party or something. I'm not exactly sure, but a while after the accident, Paul and Anthony were at the same place at the same time, and Anthony was trying to avoid eye contact, but he could feel Paul staring at him, waiting for him to look over, and he finally did. And Paul said to him, quote, you know I love you, and I'm sorry, end quote. Anthony told him, I love you too, but you need to leave. So as you can imagine, when Anthony and Connor were looked at as suspects in these murders, they both kind of understood why they would be looked at, but they both almost had this disbelief and this kind of how dare you accuse me of killing one of my closest friends. Because they had known and loved Paul since they were little kids. They weren't friends anymore, and there was a lot of tension between them, and they may never have become friends. Who knows if they ever would have been able to patch things up or to find that healing and the peace that they needed to become friends again, but neither of them would ever hurt Paul. Anthony said that he has heard people say that Paul deserved to die, and he said, quote, yes, he made a mistake, and there are a lot of people suffering for it, but nobody deserves to die, end quote. Again, Anthony and Morgan and Miley and Connor and all of their parents are just, they seem like the most wonderful people because I don't know how people find that kind of compassion after going through something so hard. I guess that's, you know, kind of the the way that people cope is to find that forgiveness and find that peace so that they can 
move forward and be who Mallory would want them to be. But it's really incredible to see them all kind of rally around and stand up for Paul because not a lot of people were. So the investigation, of course, went into everyone that had contact with the Murdoch family um, because of the boating accident, which is fair. That totally makes sense to me. The police looked into Mallory's dad, Philip, as a suspect, and he said that when they approached him, he was surprised that he hadn't been questioned earlier because he knew that people around town thought it was him because of how much he loved and cared about his kids. He would do anything to protect them. People had this mentality around Philip that he loved his daughter so deeply and he was so devastated. They didn't know what he was going to do. And he said in the documentary, Philip talks about how people were afraid of him for a while because they knew how much he loved his daughters and how loyal he was to his family. Um, but of course, Philip is not a murderer and he is a wonderful and kind person. Um, so he was very cooperative in the investigation because he had nothing to hide. Mark Tinsley, the lawyer for the Beach family, put out a statement on behalf of the Beach family saying, quote, The Beach family extends its deepest and warmest sympathies to the Murdoch family during this terrible time. Having suffered the devastating loss of their own daughter, the family prays that the Murdochs can find some level of peace from this tragic loss, end quote. Maggie Murdoch, whose full name was Margaret Kennedy Brandsetter Murdoch, was just 52 years old when she was killed. Friends remembered her as a dedicated mom, an amazing friend with a great sense of humor, and a very kind and inviting person. Maggie's childhood friends said that she was raised as, quote, a proper Southern girl. One of her high school track teammates said, quote, she was from the South, and the Southern dream for a girl at that time was to finish college, maybe, but more importantly, to find a husband, get married, and have kids, end quote. I didn't see a lot about her relationship with Alec, uh, other than at the end of her life, they were just living separate lives. They were married, but they were extremely unhappy from what everyone said and most likely soon to be divorced. A family friend said that she lived for her boys and a family member said, quote, she bent over backwards for her kids, maybe to a fault. Those boys wanted for nothing, end quote. Another family member said, quote, she let her hair down and drop some F-bombs and tell you to piss off if she felt like it. She had a great dry sense of humor, end quote. One of the Murdoch's family friends said that the media was painting this family as monsters and that they were all losing sight of the fact that a family had lost two members who were their siblings, their cousins, their grandchildren. Another family friend, Caitlin Jin, said, quote, our community has lost sight in the fact that two people have lost their lives. Most times in our community, when there is a tragic death, we all pull together, put all things aside and support them. It should be no different for this family. We should not focus on the past or mistakes made, but the fact that there is a family that just had their world turned upside down. This family has my prayers and love being sent their way as they have a very tough journey ahead, end quote. Obviously, in hindsight, we know exactly who is responsible for Maggie and Paul's deaths, but at the time of the funeral, it was an open investigation and Alec was still getting a lot of sympathy from the community. That did not last very long. State investigators tried to keep things very quiet, of course. There wasn't a press conference and there was very little information released at first. They did put out a statement, though, that said that there was no danger to the public. And I don't know how they could claim that if they didn't know who did this, but I assume it's just because the angle that was very quickly pushed is that this was a targeted attack against the Murdochs related to Mallory's death, and that's kind of what everyone believed in the very beginning. After the homicides, Alec's brothers did an interview where they said that Alex told them that he had been getting threatening phone calls from strangers for weeks, but he didn't take them seriously. They put out a $100,000 reward for any information on who committed these murders. The Murdoch family, or at least Alec's brothers, felt that this was revenge for Mallory's death, and very quickly the investigation turned to Connor, then to Mallory's dad, Philip. Even Morgan was interviewed and asked for DNA samples. 
She told the investigators, quote, do not overlook Alec Murdoch, end quote. Interesting in these cases when the guilty party tries to place blame everywhere else, how quickly that falls apart because most people do not operate like criminal masterminds. Most people are not plotting and scheming and working on cover-ups for their crimes. So all of the people that were close to Mallory were fine to have their DNA samples taken and were fine to do interviews and were totally compliant with police because they had nothing to hide. And that's because most people are not like Alec Murdoch. Thank goodness. It's actually very unfortunate that people like Alec Murdoch exist. Everyone that gets sucked into the force field is taken for the ride while this person acts like a selfish, inconsiderate asshole who does things like steal money from grieving families and cause heartache for everyone in their path. We will go into details in the next episode. Like I mentioned, um, as the investigation into the murders of Maggie and Paul continued, they discovered that there were two different types of guns used. Paul had been shot multiple times with a shotgun, which from what I understand is harder to trace because the ballistics of a shotgun are a lot different than the ballistics of like a rifle. Uh, but Maggie had been shot with a very unique type of AR-15 that had very specific bullets. And there were shell casings that were left at the scene that would have matched a gun that the Murdoch family definitely owned. But this gun was never turned over into the investigation as evidence. They owned tons of different guns and had plenty of social media photos of the family with all of these different guns. And I guess at some point, once suspicion was turning toward Alec, Buster and one of Alec's brothers were seen removing multiple items, including guns, from the family home, leading a lot of people to believe that they were probably tipped off that the police were gearing up to do a search, so a lot of their guns have not been recovered. Paul and Maggie's deaths threw the Murdoch family into the spotlight yet again, and Alec's past was starting to catch up with him. There were more than one suspicious deaths that could be linked through the grapevine to the Murdochs, and just as things started heating up, Everyone was starting to point fingers at Alec for his involvement with Maggie and Paul's deaths. Then suddenly, Alec made another frantic phone call to 911, saying that he had been shot on the side of the road when he pulled over to fix a flat tire. We will go into all of the details of that incident, because there's a lot to cover there. Uh, we'll go into the aftermath, including the over 100 charges files against Alec Murdoch. Yes, you heard me correctly. 100 charges ranging from tax evasion, money laundering, fraud, forgery, and murder. There has been a lot of updates since the Netflix documentary aired, so there is a lot to be covered. And this episode is really long, and I still have to go do another full deep dive into the aftermath of everything that's come out. So... So that is what we will be talking about in the next episode. At that time, I also will be going over the details of the death of Stephen Smith, which is a cold case that has been reopened in connection to the Murdochs. And I will also be talking about the death of Gloria Sutterfield and the atrocious way that Alec Murdoch took advantage of her grieving family. I don't want to hurry and rush over the details of their cases and throw it in at the end of this because their stories are just as important. So I'm going to go into all of the details in the next episode. This was a long one. If you're still here, thank you for watching the full episode. Thanks for being here. Make sure that you subscribe on YouTube or follow TGI Crime Day wherever you get your audio podcasts so that you don't miss the next part of the Murdoch case because, like I said, this was just the tip of the iceberg. We have so much more to go over. Until next time, keep investigoogling and go do something nice for someone to balance out all of the horrible energy that people put out into this world. I will talk to you soon. Bye.